You are listening to WCAT Radio, your station for quality Catholic programming. Your selected program will begin right after a word from our sponsor, GroupM7.com, a web design and hosting company. Log on to GroupM7.com today and let them know that WCAT Radio sent you. You know, my finest childhood memories was the Saturday morning movies for about four bits each. My brother and I could split a Coke and a big box of popcorn and watch movies about Tarzan, Jane, and their Amazon River adventures. Well, maybe that's where Jeff Bezos took his name. His Amazon.com is now the largest online retailer in the world. I'm Michael Malfood with Group M7, the oldest and largest website design firm in East Texas. And here's my point. And as usual, it's a good one. If your website is modern and up-to-date, mobile and search engine friendly, it matters not whether you sell a product or provide information about your goods and services. Your sales justifiably will increase just like theirs. The world uses the Internet. We can improve your website and your email. Look at our giant portfolio at GroupM7.com. Since 1995, there's only one web and there's only one group, and it's us. It's Group M7. You're listening to WCAT Radio, your home for authentic Catholic programming. Welcome to WCAT. Um, I'm your host, Leticia Velasquez of Living the Gospel of Life. And today we have a, an author with us, uh, Charles D. Frown of Slaying Dragons. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. We are protection against the wickedness and snares of the enemy, may, the devil. May God rebuke and we humbly pray. And do thou, o Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking their own souls. Amen. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome, uh, Charles. Did I say your name correctly? Uh, it's Franny, actually. <laughs> I always forget to tell people that. Oh, that's okay. Franny. Okay, very good. Uh, tell us uh, your background. You have a very interesting uh, journey to uh, being the author of a book on the demonic. It's not yeah. yeah. So it was. Um, it was a book I never never thought I would write. Had no plans on uh, ever writing. I've enjoyed writing since I was about twelve. Um, really got into writing after I got my master's in theology. Kind of started, I think, in the process. That was um, about twelve years ago. Um, 2011, I think. But what started the uh, the journey to write this book was a desire. Uh, so I was teaching high school theology for seven years. I, I taught for 10 years, just finished my 10th year. But at the year seven, I hit what I would call a spiritual plateau. It, it felt like I had reached my pinnacle of holiness and I wasn't happy with where I was. I wanted more, but there was an obstacle. I didn't know what the obstacle was, but I felt like I could make no more spiritual progress. So I didn't like this at all. So I spoke to some um, priest friends of mine who I didn't realize at the time were you know, involved in deliverance ministry and were very aware of how exorcism things worked. And I spoke to them about what can I do? What more can I do? And one of the first things we thought of was, well, I'll do Exodus 90, which is this um, intense um, penitential program uh, with a lot of fasting. So I started with a, with a lot of fasting for about three months with a group of boys from the high school and the, and the chaplain with me. At the end of that, um, you know, three months of, of fasting and other penitential works as well, I spoke to the same priest and he um, led me through a lot of renunciations. And I did um, this extra rosary devotion, devotion to Our Lady for healing, a uh, process called interior healing. And at the end of that, he prayed over me, just, you know, simple deliverance prayers, um, going through old wounds, the issue of wounds and, and renunciations and binding prayers. He taught me all that stuff. And at the same time, he introduced me, uh, well, I was being introduced to the idea of exorcisms and how that all worked. I watched a documentary on the true story behind the movie, The Exorcist, and I'd never heard any of that stuff. I had a master's in theology and I've been in seminary. Um, prior to my master's in theology for a year and a half, and then discerned the priesthood for a long time prior to that. So I had been around a lot of priests, a lot of education, but I'd never picked up spiritual warfare in depth and with real clarity. And I think that had a negative impact on me, not knowing how all that spiritual warfare worked. And um, so eventually, after watching this documentary on the 
true story behind The Exorcist, I started listening to talks by exorcists, starting with Father Ripperger, because he has so many talks online. And it was answering so many questions, like how do demons work? How do sacraments and sacramentals work? The authority that a father has in his family, the power of sin, the power of grace, all of these things that I knew uh, with a master's of theology, but not in the applied, like the real world, like exorcists see behind the veil. That's how I always put it. They see what happens. They see how these things work. And they were able to explain. So his explanations changed my whole life, my whole perspective. And then eventually I um, really started to use sacramentals um, with the same priest, um, priest friend's help. And I saw very tangible impacts. We can talk about that as we go from using these uh, sacramentals. But all while doing all that research, I was taking notes, which is my just what I do so I can remember things. And I looked at all my notes I'm like, wow, this is this is a book like there's so much material here. And no one's going to watch all these videos and read all these books because we're just so busy. So I decided to write a book and then then slaying dragons. It happened and it ended up being very helpful, not only to me, but also to priests, seminarians, lay faithful. People are really um really, really benefiting from it. A lot of people reach out to me wanting to buy more books to give them away because they've been so positively impacted. It's, it's really disturbing and, and true that this isn't taught regularly in the seminaries. Um, a few years ago, when the movie The Right came out, I was able to interview Father Gary Thomas, who is sort of, who you're familiar with, you mentioned in your book, um, sort of an unwilling exorcist who kind of poo-pooed the devil and, and was in Rome, and his bishop said, hey, how would you like to stay a couple of months and learn to be an exorcist? And he said, more months in Rome? Sure, whatever. Um, and then he said, then I started to believe in the devil. And I said, why? He said, because I met him. And so here's a reluctant exorcist who had has become a leading exorcist in that he he sent a copy of his book, I believe, to every single bishop in the country. And before one of the CCB meetings, they had a, a seminar, one-day seminar on deliverance. And um, I knew that I was flooded with requests. You know, me, just the author of an article, to, to reach him. Because it's an area, as you say in your book, that is very much, uh, deliverance is uh, very much needed and not always provided. So it's, it's just sad that it wasn't offered in the seminary. I hope that that, that is changing. Yeah, I've heard from a number of priests, because as I mentioned, um, uh, bishops have enjoyed it, priests have enjoyed it, seminarians, and one priest, it was funny, it's a great story, He, uh, I gave him the book, and he, he didn't really know me, um, but I gave him the book, and he said, you know, politely said thank you, and then as he told me later, he said, all I did was put it on my shelf and just kind of forget about it, but then about eight or nine months later, he had certain things happen in his priesthood which had never happened before, which involved the diabolical. And he had no training because he didn't learn anything in seminary. And he went straight to my book because he saw, he remembered he had it and he read it. He said he devoured it in like two days or less. <laughs> and that really woke him up and it taught him like what is what he's actually going through. And thankfully he had some good priest mentors who were well-trained, but he then sent me an email apologizing for ignoring my book because he found it to be so helpful, so eye-opening and so informative. And I'm like, and he even eventually gave a homily about my book. And I, ha I have a link to that video on my website. So that was uh, very humbling. But I've heard that from, from priests, from seminarians, um, even bishops who, who read it and like, wow, I, I, I didn't know all of this stuff because they just don't talk about it. Oh. It's very sad because the priests are in the thick of the spiritual battle and many times they're going in unarmed. You know, they have they have the weapons, right? They have the sacraments, but they don't, like you said, they don't see the unseen spiritual battle that's going on. They're not aware of it. They haven't been made aware of it. So they're sort of flying blind in a sense. They've got the weapons, right? But they don't know um, the effect they have. Really yeah, and uh, Father Gary Thomas, I mentioned him in my book from one of his talks. Um, he He talked about how bishops, have told him directly that they don't believe in the devil. Or they said, I don't want to have anything to do with, well, maybe this is to Father Amorth, this next one. They don't want to appoint an exorcist or do anything like that because they don't want to make the uh, the devil angry. <laughs> so there's, there's this superstitious fear of demons or this complete you know, lack of belief on bishops. Um, 
So the book now has three bishops' endorsements. So there are some bishops out there who, who get it, who see it, and who know that it's important. Well, especially nowadays, as you mentioned in your book, that uh, <clears throat> demonic activity is on the um, all over the world. Um, what do you attribute that to? Or the exorcist you quote in the book attribute that to? By the way, I just want to say that uh, Charles's book is a great reference book of all different exorcists from different countries, Father Morth, Father Thomas, Father Rippinger. He started with Father Rippinger's work primarily. Many of us have seen his talks on YouTube. They're very important. But then he moved on to include other exorcists. So it, it is a reference book, but it doesn't read like one. It, it's uh, very engaging. So a layman you know, who just has an interest in these things and the spiritual warfare could read it and not be over your head. You know, and I did read it very quickly. And now I'm going back and I'm still gleaning more. The, the thing that really struck me the last time I read the book was that my guardian angel is stronger than Satan. That, that was amazing. Right. Could you explain? Because the bishops don't need to be afraid of Satan. They, you know, they, hold, the, they hold the power. Nobody right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, we have uh, that. That was one of the big things, or at least four aha moments when I was doing all the research. And one of them was that we don't need to be afraid of demons, because I was up until I did the research. Sadly, I was. I remember concrete. Like there was one time where I had um, a dream where the the devil was in my house, and like concretely, physically residing in one of the rooms, and it was the devil. And I woke up from this very real dream. And my first thought, and this scared me once I thought about it, but it was my instinctive thought. This was way uh, three years before I did the research for the book um, was I should probably not try to be too holy, because if I try to be too holy, the devil's going to mess with me. And I'm like, oh. as soon as I had that thought, like the devil had scared me away from pursuing holiness. And as soon as I said it in my mind, so I had the thought, I'm like, wow, that is a very dangerous thought. But that's what's going to happen, whether you admit it like I did. Thanks be to God. By that grace, I admitted it to myself. If, but that's what people are doing. Like bishops who don't want to engage in the exorcism ministry, they are in fear of the devil. And the devil then wins. The devil's sitting on the throne if we're in fr- afraid of him because we're not going to do things. We're going to tiptoe around holy things. We're going to let the devil in. We're not going to challenge him because there's something like with the whole abortion issue, especially we're seeing it now with the highlighted in Texas, really disturbing things with the satanic temple. But if when we see Satanism and we see the devil taking over the culture, which is what's happening, which goes back to one of the questions you, you asked a minute ago, if, if we're not willing, if we're not courageous to fight the devil, then he's going to win. And that's what's happening. We're not only fearful of the devil, we're also um, ignorant of how to fight him. And those are, those are two big problems. That's right. And Denying his existence is allowing him to take over. Right. Yeah, very much so. Because if you, if you deny the devil exists, you end up psycho- psycho- psychologizing everything. Um, like people have these uh, obsession, oppression, uh, even possession. All these things are going to be psychologized because, of course, it couldn't be the devil because you've rejected his existence. So you're not going to ascribe anything to him. Uh, and then, of course, then there's like you're being attacked by by another voice in the culture, like, oh, you see the devil under every rock. Like, well, that's, that is not the case too. So like everything, a balance in the middle, we don't blame the devil for everything, but we do blame him for a lot. Um, we also don't excuse him like he's, he can't do anything because while Christ has conquered him and we're bound to Christ, it's still a war. Christ didn't abolish the devil when he rose from the dead. He crippled the devil and he gave us a whole bunch of weapons, but those have to be used. And if they aren't used, then we're the ones who are suffering on the battlefield, not the devil. That's right. Uh, what is the motivation of the demons? Go back to the history of the angels. Um, I found that very enlightening that they all were given their calling at their creation and they accepted it or denied it at that very second. That's, that's fascinating, but it gives you an insight into the nature of angels. Yeah. Right. And there's, I'm reading a book by Father Bob. Uh, Bamonte, the head of the um, International Association of Exorcists. Um, he wrote a lot of books that are available through the Pope Leo the Thirteenth Institute. But he collected um, 
teachings of the great saints, doctors of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Bonaventure, St. Anselm, and others, all the way back to the beginning, including the fathers of the church, talking about why the devil fell. Because there's so much, like you just you just mentioned, there's so much there. Like more literature needs to be writ- written about why the demons fell and what the implications are. So there's a certain amount of demonology that, that the faithful should not be interested in because it gets very speculative and only exorcists really need to deal with that because it's also terrorizing and it can confuse people. But there's another part of demonology, which is very practical. So the, the devil fell, the demons all fell um, from pride, but they were all before they fell intended to do something. Uh, I can't remember which book it was. I was just reading the other day that one demon who manifested in a person in a, during an exorcism said he was originally in charge of a certain aspect of creation. It's something to do with vegetation, like something so specific, but, and he was supposed to help make things beautiful in the world when it comes to like flowers or something, which can seem kind of like, Oh, that's, that's interesting. But he reject, he lost that. And now he does the opposite. He, I know, I think he may, I can't remember exactly, but maybe something like he was pushing people towards drugs, which is a misuse of creation. You know, and that may not be exactly what was in the story, but that is the the spirit of it. So what was that? Yeah, and that the devil at, at the instant of his creation was imbued with the knowledge that we don't have because they're highly intelligent. He knew exactly what God wanted of him, unlike us. So God has to have mercy on us, poor adults that don't really understand our mission. And it takes a lifetime and many of us even then don't get it. But the angels, because of their high intelligence, their pure spirit, they understood immediately what God wanted of them. So when the angels said no, it was no forever. I mean, there's there's no converting a demon. Right, right. No converting a demon. That's something we have to remember um, very clearly. Yeah, so they when, when they were first created, they beheld clearly exactly what the reality was, their relationship with God, what the mission God was giving them was, and that they needed to say yes if they wanted to be glorified, and if they said no, they'd be damned. All of that was instinctive, essentially. And then they had that one choice. And certain of the doctors of the church, you know, say whether there was a process, a couple thoughts, or just one. St. Thomas says it was instantaneous that the devil said no, 100% no, definitively never not going to do it. Because what they it was, but it was pride. So the first started with pride and then it overflowed into all kinds of, but even like envy of us. Like one of the reasons they come after us is because they envy pulling from the pride. They envy what we have, what we're going to get. Because one of the, one of the things that they hate, which is one of their motivations. So they're, they're animated by hate. They hate us. They hate God. They hate the whole plan. They want to ruin everything. They want to destroy that's only what they want to do. They want to lie. So they're against truth. They want to destroy because they're against life. But one of the things that I highlight in my book, and I wrote a follow-up article on my website, I have a website, theslayingdragonsbook.com, where I write a lot of articles, kind of follow-ups um, on some of the things I mentioned in the book. But the idea of the hierarchy in heaven. So we have nine choirs of spirits. The highest is seraphim. The lowest is the angels. Our guardian angels come from the angels. Satan, it seems, the popular opinion is he was a seraph, the highest angel. So, but they all fell, the demons all fell or fell from all of the nine choirs, leaving empty seats, essentially empty thrones. And what God's going to do is raise up the elect, the, the saved from humanity will take the places of those fallen demons and all the nine choirs will, will replace them on their thrones. And they know this. They know that not only are they going to be damned, but some of us who they hate are going to take their spot, the spot that was intended for them in glory. And we will be raised above some of them. Like Our Lady, there are some very fascinating revelations that the demons give in exorcisms about how and why they hate Our Lady, because she's placed above all of the angels. We're placed in the midst of the angels. That means we're above some, but below others. So, so that, that is one of the, the motivations. Like The incarnation is another motivation. When they beheld in the revelation that was given to them that the son of God would become a man, would take a nature. This is one of the things that motivated Satan, that the son of God would take a nature. Satan immediately thought, oh, it should be mine. Not just an angelic nature, but mine, because mine is the best. Mine is worthy of God uniting himself to me. Not to these little ants, these these little like mud balls that are talking. Like that's completely beneath the dignity of God. And how dare he do such a thing, make us worship that creature? So they were offended. This is one of the things I've been learning from some follow-up reading I'm doing is 
from exorcists that the demons are offended, humiliated. It was an affront that God would raise these dirt creatures above them. And that uh, fuels their, their pride and fuels their envy and hatred. And we have to think about that when we're being tempted or if there are extraordinary manifestations, like the creatures that are coming after us are really, really malicious, like pure malice and have power. So we do have to be defensive. This is defensive and offensive because this is war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so many of us fail to see it. Um, being involved in the pro-life movement most of my life, I think has helped me to see the maliciousness <clears throat> of the devil because abortion is something that is very sacred to him because it is the opposite of God. Killing the, the life that God has created is the opposite of God. It's... Um, some people call abortion the devil's sacrament because it's a, like a mimicry of the mass um, that we're destroying the life where the mass is Christ offering his life. Um, so it's very important to, to go into battle with your spiritual armor on. So how do Catholics do that? What's the best spiritual armor you can have to fight in this battle? Yeah. So the, the, that is the key. That is one of the things that is all through the book, which is why people love it so much. It's a very practical read. Um, but the first thing is, and this is, a, I think this was one, I had four aha moments. This may have been one of them too, um, is grace. The state of grace is not just, um, you know, you gotta be, in, you have to die in a state of grace. So you go to heaven. Like that's, that's burned into Catholic intellects, but it's not just for the end that we die in a state of grace and go to heaven. We have to live in a state of grace, not only live in a state of grace so that we will persevere to the end and be saved, but also the state of grace is the armor. And St. Paul gives great descriptions of all of the different pieces of the armor, which we should, we should reflect on how he words it because it's not so state of grace. That's, that's the umbrella term, but going to confession regularly to not only stay in a state of grace, but grow. Because we can, in a lot of Catholics don't know this, we can grow in grace. We can increase in the state of justification. We can become holier, more con- concretized, more seated and rooted in grace, stronger in grace. Uh, because if you are strong in grace, the devil can't tempt you away from holiness as easily. If you're weak, if you're a brand new baby Christian, um, just fresh from your conversion, the devil's just like, I'll, I'll just wait a, a few weeks and come right after him again because he's got nothing. He has no armor. So frequent confession, going to mass as much as possible, even if you can't go to mass more than Sunday, because that's, you know, a lot of people can't because we're just so busy. Spiritual communion, staying connected mentally to the Eucharist, going to the chapel to pray in the presence of our Lord. Um, but those are the two big ones. Confession is a sacrament and exorcists say it's more powerful than an exorcism, which is a powerful sacramental so state of grace um sorry go ahead more powerful than an exorcism because some of us find it hard to get an exorcism or any um attention to whatever demonic influence may be in our lives um it in certain dioceses it's poo-pooed and you don't have an exorcist that's readily available so but we have confession so we can't just throw up our hands and say well i tried right Right. And so what, one, what some people need to realize, this is a good point on confession, and we'll go on to the, the sacramentals are, are very important, too, is with the armor. But sometimes people, and I've had this temptation in my life, too, like have the temptation of I'll go sin, you know, because God's merciful and I'll go to confession on, on Saturday. Not only is that an abuse of God's mercy and a mortal sin in itself <laughs> to do that, the sin of presumption, um, which is a sin against the Holy Spirit, so very serious stuff, but also you're weakening, you're destroying your contrition. You have to have contrition when you go to confession. If you don't have contrition, it's not valid. But also, eventually you're going to push it all away because you don't care. So you're manifesting that you don't care. If you live in sin for too long, you're going to get stuck there. And this is one of the things, like you were talking about exorcist not being as available. Uh, if you get, if pe- people get possessed these days, it's happening, it is still rare, but it does happen and it's happening more. It's one of the things exorcists keep saying, you know, obsession, oppression, uh, possession, they're all happening more because of how secularized and open to the occult the world is becoming and oppressed. Like the world is really in a state of oppression. And as a result of that, it diabolical, extraordinary diabolical activities is more likely. So what you have to do is, is I, you know, I taught high school theology for 10 years. I kept telling the kids, you got to take your soul seriously. You can't, 
put off confession. You can't stay in a state of mortal sin because if, if you get, if you, you can, you can kind of, the confession is the cure along the way. So you, you're, you're a stupid kid or whatever, because I taught high schoolers go to confession uh, three weeks later, you know, this applies adults too. You have to, you have to weed the garden regularly. So think about it that way. If you abandon the garden in spring, all summer, by the end of the summer, it's going to be thick with weeds and grass, and you might as well just ditch the whole garden. It's done. And some of the cases of possession that, that exorcists see is sometimes people got so deep in it that they don't want to or they can't come out of it. So some cases of possession do not end well. Yeah, that's a good point. That's an excellent point. Okay, so you're going to talk about sacramentals. I have my miraculous medal and my scapular on. I knew the kind of discussion we were going to have, so I, I have my sacramentals with me. Uh, explain what they are, and that you, you did say earlier that uh, exorcism is a sacramental. So explain the difference between a sacrament and a sacramental. Sure, and, and that's something, uh, again, sacramentals is very poorly known. I don't think I was taught anything. I was only in seminary for a year and a half, but... I didn't pick up anything substantial. Um, sometimes sacramentals are just in the culture, so no one talks about it. Um, sometimes the faith itself is in the culture and no one talks about it. Both of those end poorly. You have to have education. You have to have knowledge. So sacraments are the seven sacraments instituted by Christ clearly in the Gospels, um, and they impart sanctifying grace, the grace that moves us from a state of sin to a state of grace, from uh, into a state of adoption, baptism brings us from being uh, um, essentially a child in the kingdom of Satan, which is what overruns the world, except for the kingdom of God. So you're brought, you're transferred, translated into the kingdom of, of God through baptism. So the sacraments cr- cause a substantial change, you could say. It might not be the most technical theological wording, but by imparting sanctifying grace, they give something to the soul which changes its spiritual status. Um, and if you die with a state of gra- in a state of grace, you can go to heaven. Sacramentals do not impart sanctifying grace, but they do condition the soul very well, very powerfully, to be open to God's activity and to be more inclined to sanctifying grace and to essentially allow the, the flow of sanctifying grace to get deeper into the soul. So sacramentals are powerful to um, break the devil's hold, um, push the devil further away, and condition the soul to have a deeper devotion, regardless of what demons are doing. And there are lots of sacramentals. There's uh, one book I have, I can't remember who the priest is, but it's, um, I think it's called Talks on the Sacramentals. It's from um, 1950 or something. But he says there are at least 140 sacramentals. And I think he's talking about simply the things that we can use in our everyday life, because sacramentals involve like the altar, the ambo, the candles at mass, lots of the vestments. Uh, the patent, lots of things on the altar are sacramentals. So you have sacramental uh, things dedicated for worship. You have sacramental blessings, specifically a blessing on somebody. And you have uh, sacramental blessings on things. And then you have sacramentals that are blessed items. And so it's it's a whole bunch. And if you think about it, I um, did a podcast with with somebody about sacramentals recently, and I collected a lot of, a lot of thoughts. If you look at all the sacramentals, before you label it all as superstitious, like from a Protestant perspective, instead look at it as God is so good. He's pouring out blessings in every way, shape, and form. You can get your your livestock blessed, your barn blessed, your well blessed. You can get wine blessed, grapes blessed, pets blessed. You can get crucifixes blessed, sacred metals blessed. You can get your car blessed, your house blessed. God wants to bless everything that we use. And that's a good thing. We should expect that because of his revelation of himself being so good. It shouldn't be rejected as superstitious ever, or as like excessive, like God should be excessive. Someone who's as good as God is should be excessive with his love. And that's what sacramentals and the sacraments show us that God is dumping his love on us. And he wants us to, to take it, learn how to use it and be transformed by it. And to help other family members that may not be as far along or may not be in a state of grace, can sacrament influence them? You know, people talk about the green scapular. Is If someone is not in a state of grace, does that have any efficacy? I don't know if that's a question you, you're prepared for. Yeah, so it's, um, um, I guess it can, because sacramentals, like if you think about someone who's possessed, 
who comes forward, one of the goals is to get the person to go to confession. So even if they're possessed and they go, they can go to confession, be restored to a state of grace and still be possessed. So then the sacramental is being applied to someone who's in a state of grace, but sacramentals can be used for um, someone who's not in a state of grace. And so it is kind of, it is complicated because if you have someone who's away from the church in a state of sin, you're devout in a state of grace and you're trying to use the sacramentals to condition them it will work. There are historical things like some of the techniques, you know, sneaking um, miraculous metals, green scapulars under people's pillows or mattresses. So they don't know they're putting in their bag, like hiding it in their house. Yeah. I mean, it is blessed by the authority of God through his church. So it does have a blessing regardless of what the person thinks of it. But the more you regard the sacramental, the more grace can flow. The miraculous mail is a good example to answer the, the question of can a sacramental affect somebody who's not in a state of grace? Because the reason it's called a miraculous medal in part is due to the very famous conversion of an anti-Catholic Jew who was the friend of a devout Catholic who said, okay, I want you to take this medal and I want you to say the memorare. I think it was for nine days. And then, or it was just once, I can't remember. And the Jewish man agreed and he, he had a miracle. Our lady appeared to him in the church converted him on the spot, infused divine knowledge into his brain, into his mind, into his intellect, and he, a uh, powerful conversion and became a priest. But he was not in a state of grace when they gave him the medal. So it can, it can definitely work. And uh, it's, it's, so those are very useful, um, even for people, you know, I gave them to some of my kids at school. I just, um, an unchurched kid and never like, my talking to him in class was the first he'd ever heard about Christianity. He was having a good time. And like, would you take this mantle? Just like put it in your wallet. You know, here's what it is. Keep it around. When you look at it, if you're inclined say a prayer to our lady, just be open. And our lady can, can do things like that. It's much more efficacious if you're in a state of grace, I think, but God's ways are mysterious and powerful. So we should never, uh, never doubt his abilities. Very good. Um, I think a lot of people would like to understand the difference between the different stages of diabolic influence. I mean, we all know The Exorcist and certain movies that may or may not be accurate. By the way, are there any movies other than The Exorcist, which is loosely based on a true story of a young man in St. Louis, not a young girl in Georgetown, D.C., but um, any movies that you find are more accurate portrayals of a procession that you would recommend if people were to be interested in that? Uh, I don't really know because, so I watched The Exorcist when I was a kid, which I probably shouldn't have done because I was uh, not a devout Catholic and didn't understand anything about Christianity or God or, and was kind of, you know, curious about the occult. So I don't remember what impact that had on me, but since my conversion, I had a massive conversion 20 years ago when I was 20, I'm 41 now. Um, but since my conversion, I have not wanted to watch uh, movies about the devil. I watched The Exorcism of Emily Rose, and that was good. So I would say that one, because it's based on a true story. It's a little bit more toned down. It's not as Hollywoodized. And like The Exorcist is not accurate at all. Die at the end, the, the, right? The young man was, there was actually one by, with Timothy Dalton. It's a made-for-TV movie. That is more, he's, he plays the priest, is more accurate as far as I understand, more fact-based. Oh. That a hospital in St. Louis, a Catholic hospital, and he was delivered. And yet nobody went flying through windows. You know, that was um, you know, dr- over-dramatized, you know, that both priests had to die in order for this young woman to be um, delivered. And that's not, that doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah, that's, that, that is not, there's a great documentary, you can find it on YouTube, I can't remember the name, but I think there are two versions of it which go through the actual facts. They interview some of the priests who were involved. They go through the, the diaries, the journals that were kept for the exorcist. Um, so yeah, I guess the exorcism of Emily Rose, I would recommend if someone wants to, um, but above beyond that, I really discourage people from watching movies about the devil because they're so jarring. Like I, I don't, I was even watching uh, a trailer for The Conjuring because someone suggested, hey, you should watch it because it's based on you know true events. So I started watching the trailer and I had to turn it off, just the trailer. And I don't really know how to describe exactly what is happening, but I personally don't enjoy those. So I don't really have any good recommendations except for The Exorcism of Emily Rose. 
actually edifying because she she was a victim soul. She chose to allow what was going on. Um, she was given a choice, Emily. Actually, her name was Annalise, right? Mm. Fair lady, supposedly, to allow this to be known, that the devil is real, evil is real, and so is our Lord. In a world that is, at, I think this happened in the 60s or early 70s, when we were poo-pooing all the old church stuff and saying, well, you know, that was the old church, it's the new church, devil's kind of been retired, and you don't have to worry about him. So we just, we'll just put him in the corner. And I think maybe that was her calling to sort of wake people up to the reality that he did. But Okay, so let's go back to stages of diabolic influence. Not The devil doesn't go from zero to 100, that everyone's either possessed or they're fine. Okay, there are different stages. And this is something which I've had to go back to several times in the book to understand and that's why it's good to have a book, because you can always go back and say, is this oppression or obsession? So let's go through it for the beginner and explain what the different levels of diabolic influence are. Sure. Um, and in my book, they're referred to as stages, because uh, um, I think that's the language Father Ripperker uses. And they may all use it too, but I've been pondering stages because there's it's not clearly like you have to go through these stages or the devil takes this approach like baby steps up 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 to possession um, sometimes you can jump uh, if you are in a state of sin and you go play with a ouija board you could become possessed uh, if god allows it a ouija board is sufficient to to get possessed by but everybody so so going through it overall everybody in the whole world up until the moment of death um, some priests say like you know 30 minutes after death, that's when the devil finally stops leaving you alone. But that's, you know, of course, as soon as you die, the devil's gone and you go to judgment immediately. Um, but everybody's subject to temptation. And that's called the, the ordinary activity is temptation. So every day, every moment, I don't really know exactly how often if the devil's constantly nagging you. But these are um, minor, tem- minor temptations, the disturbance of thought, the suggestion of the will, the... Um, orchestration of external things in a very mild way, because that can cross over to oppression. But temptation happens in the intellect. So, and that's also where prayer happens. So the more you pray, the less you are uh, tempted, and the more refined your, your radar is to detect temptation and to reject it or deal with it, instead of like, oh, let's just, you know, uh, you, you can recognize it as temptation and not just a disordered thought that flows from your sins and your wounds and whatever. But one exorcist said it's very difficult, if not impossible, to truly tell the difference between your own thought and a temptation, which leads me to take the, you know, trying to be prudent at the same time, the approach that any temptation should be any impure thought, any like angry thought, any sinful thought of whatever it is should be regarded as a temptation. It could be a natural occurrence from your mind, which is disordered from your patterns of sin, but it could also be the devil. And it's best to just, you know, do a a renunciation or a binding prayer against that temptation to drive it away because it's going to resolve any kind of, you know, wounds you're dealing with too. Um, So that's ordinary temptation is every day, all the time. Um, The next step, the next, um, I guess if you were to go to the next level would be obsession. Obsession is some people put it as um, it's classified as extraordinary activity, but some I've heard in talking to some other exorcists put it closer to temptation. It's almost like a very, very strong obsessive, temptation, one that is darker, deeper, louder, and won't go away. It's almost out of your control. It can can spill over into like hearing voices um, or just like keep waking you up or uh, leading you to depression because it's really disordering your mental um, calm. So that's called obsession. Father Ripperker, as I have in my books, uh, speculates based on his observations that 25%, I think it's 20 or 25%, of the population in the United States is diabolically diabolically obsessed. Now, this does not mean you're possessed at all. Um, I believe it because my conversion was um, um, I was brought out of a dark depression and a very a crippling anxiety uh, disorder 20 years ago. And as a result of that, there were a lot of tagalongs, which I dealt with. Once I started doing the research for this book, I started realizing like there's still this lingering stuff 17 years later after my conversion, lingering stuff that needed to be dealt with. And it was only through the use of spiritual warfare as exorcists teach it with the sacraments and the sacramentals. So we have to apply that stuff to heal our minds. And this world is, as we talked about already, is the whole world most likely is under some state of oppression. 
And if you just look around, I mean, especially the United States, we live here, we can see it better, but the whole world, some of these countries are even worse than ours. Um, but as a result, that's damaging us. Everybody in this world is collecting so many wounds now. Any saints that come out of this culture are going to be so much more magnificent than any other era of the church of the, you could say, you could speculate, of the church's history just because of what they have to overcome. All the obstacles in place, the graces they need to become a saint, period, will propel them to become the greatest saints. So in a way, this is a challenge. This is why God allows all this diabolical activity, because it's a challenge to us. If we face the challenge, we become these mighty, holy creatures that he wants us to be. So obsession and then um, you go from obsession to vexation and oppression. And vexation is often with like the saints where the devil attacks, like Padre Pio, uh, St. John Vianney. And those are two of the most popular ones and, and others where the devil manifests and like punches them. Well, that's rare. doesn't really happen to us. If God allows it, you're, you're very holy at that point. Uh, but that and oppression, oppression is where the devil can orchestrate external activities in your life, like ruin your uh, finances, ruin your relationships, ruin your marriage, even like attack your computer, your car, um, electronics. Uh, demons can attack things, uh, infest your home. That's another one. Infestation is when it happens inside your home. These manifestations, smells, noises, things breaking all the time um, would be classified as infestation where there's a demon in the house um, trying to destroy the house. One thing, so vexation I mentioned is usually given to the great saints because they've achieved such a holiness, the devil can't take it anymore. And he's just like his wrath and rage, he can't contain it. So he just lashes out and attacks the person. Exorcists are saying that this is appearing more because of the occult, that even like gravely sinful people in witchcraft, Satanism, the occult are getting attacked by by the devil. That's one of the things he'll do. He'll manifest even if they're not possessed yet, He'll, he can manifest in these same ways and physically assault them. Uh, possession victims often get scratches on their bodies. So is a very common thing. Um, and that's a manifestation of, a, of the possession, but it can also be a form of uh, classified as vexation, even though that's usually given to the great saints, that title. Um, and then you have full-blown possession, which we can talk about all the different a- avenues that can get somebody possessed. And then subjugation, um, make where you make packs with the devil. And this is something that's happening more and more, too, because of witchcraft and the occult and Satanism and all these um, old religions being dug up. These are these are open doors and people make packs in the process of, of going in this direction. You mentioned packs that were made by certain singers like Bob Dylan and John Lennon with Satan. Um, I've heard such things about Gaga others yeah so when i was doing the the research um john lennon came up from a lot of different um priests and deliverance ministry and exorcism uh as just like it's understood there are a lot of um, biographies on him it's it's still debated so i put it in the book with some question marks kind of implied because it's still debated we don't know definitively but if you look at some of their album covers there's a there's a an infamous album album cover from the from the beatles where they have all these um, dismembered babies. They're dressed as doctors and they have dismembered baby body parts, not real babies, but like dolls all over them. can't remember the name of the, um, of the album cover, but it was pulled. The album cover was pulled and replaced with a different one. But if you Google it, you'll find it. Like it was published for a long time. And then they got into, you know, Eastern meditation, Eastern religions. There are certain uh, blasphemous things that John Lennon is reported to have said and done. Um, comparing himself to to our Lord. Um, and then there's the implication from, um, remember his wife or his girlfriend, I can't remember her name, um, that there were packs involved. And then, um, yeah, yeah, Bob Dylan is one I've heard a lot about, so I threw that in there um, as well. Kind of like a qu- question marks around that too as to whether that's true or not or what he meant, but he gave some uh, strange interview where he talked about kind of this deal he made um, with the, the uh, chief commander of this world. It doesn't sound like God. So it has to do with his music career. So we won't, we won't condemn him because we don't know. Kevin, uh, um, I remember saying the song, you have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So he acknowledged that you serve someone. Um, I think at that time he thought he was serving Christ, but um, I don't know if that Christian phase of his lasted. 
I remember that because a music teacher, believe it or not, in public school brought it up. He was very uh, devout Lutheran, and all our music was religious. And he just brought that up as he was also trying to um, evangelize the kids, I think. And so he brought up Bob Dylan as as an example of someone who who remarked that you have to just serve someone in the world. So who knows? We'll leave it to God to judge them. But it is pretty obvious that in Hollywood, people are given over to Satan in the the way their music portrays uh, good and evil and so convoluted and sexual perversion. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost like you can't watch an award show anymore without being in a state of sin. Um, I don't, I don't watch it anymore because they're, they look like satanic rituals. Here they are. <laughs> you shouldn't assume yeah. that they're not. And from everything we've heard about Hollywood, uh, again, from exorcists, people who work in this ministry, there are lots of stories of people go into Hollywood and are brought into rituals and are forced to do things in order to become successful. And sometimes they do it and they stay, they're successful. Sometimes they leave and they have the story to tell. And then, so if you think about it that way, like we're so used to Hollywood being this system of entertainment for us, which we don't need. But so we're we're conditioned to think uh, the system of entertainment is normal, but perhaps we should think of it as not normal, not good. And this manifestation of what they're really doing. So like you said, sometimes these award shows look like satanic rituals. And I've, some of the times they are satanic rituals in what we're seeing, whether they're actually offering a sacrifice or not, we don't know. But, but the, the depth of depravity coming out of Hollywood, residing in Hollywood, and then we see these pseudo satanic rituals for all the world to see. And we know the theology of the kingdom of Satan versus the kingdom of God. I think we're very naive to think that this is, oh, just acting and just performance and they're just being creative, creative expressions. I mean, this is, this is deep, dark evil. Um, what it exactly is, we don't know. Um, but we can't just pretend it's not as dark as it looks when we're seeing it. So I, we, I don't have cable. I don't watch TV. I rarely watch movies. I rarely watch anything on a screen because it's just so infiltrated. It's it's just really it's really bad. And and that's that is aiding and leading to this like global oppression that I keep talking about. If the whole world and then the like pornography statistics on top of it all. And then it, when I'm teaching the kids um, in the high school, like the kind of music they listen to, the kind of music they think is OK, they're willing to talk to adults about shamelessly. Uh, it's like the conscience is destroyed and it's being replaced by really by a satanic mentality. And this is something that exorcists have mentioned. Um, uh, what was it? The, I think it was 2012, 2016, the head of the International Association of Exorcists said, we have a pastoral emergency in the world because of the limited number of exorcists and the high rate of the occult, the high involvement of the occult, including, and they discussed at one of these conferences, the impact of pornography on possession and the overlap, like how much how much power does pornography actually have? What are we seeing when it comes to diabolical, increased diabolical activity? And with the statistics, I mean, if we did the math, I, would, I wish I could just do the math of all this stuff. Um, it would really be a scary reality um, to look at what our world really is spiritually. So Catholics aren't, if they want to stay in a state of grace and stay away from demonic influence of any kind, better be very careful like you are of what they watch, what they listen to, um, and what kind of uh, activities they do. Every single culture that I've come across has some version of the occult that they dabble in. You know, my Irish relatives were big into astrology. Italian relatives were doing fortune telling. Um, Hispanics in in my family, there's other um, ancient practices that came from paganism that have survived. Um, So we need, I, as a kid, um, searching in the 70s for for meaning in my life i was a practicing catholic but i wasn't well catechized you know we had the puppy dogs and balloons catechism so we didn't know anything but god loves you god loves you god loves you didn't talk about the devil didn't talk about even the sacraments really so i was looking for um the the spiritual we were doing seances as kids we're nine years old we were doing ouija board you name it uh in girl scouts in girl scout camp Uh, and adults mothers understood the danger you know, and I believe she's a nun now, but she went through two hell and back in her involvement in the occult. She's the one that got me interested, nine years old, not a lot of supervision, wealthy kid. And she just dabbled in everything. She said, let's make ourselves witches one day. Let's pray our father backwards. 
And we didn't know what we were doing, but we had the intention as kids, stupid kids. Um, we started doing it, and a glass top table in the room just suddenly split in half. And we went running down the stairs like the little rascals. Ah! Never mess with that again. Thankfully, our Lord allowed us to be scared somehow. I don't know if that was demonic or what, but it sort of woke me up. And then I started searching for God by reading books about saints and whatnot. But um, a lot of kids don't get that warning, and they're heading headlong into the occult and pornography. I remember Joseph Schamber, who's a, a, a convert, revert back to his Catholic faith and into a chaste life from a homosexual uh, pornographer lifestyle. He said that when he was doing homosexual pornography, he put a curse on the videos that anyone should watch it would have demonic influence because he was so angry about being involved and he was so tortured. So um, just don't even go there. You know, in the old days, you could avoid the dirty bookstores. You know, there was some sense of shame about them. But now, my goodness, you, you click the wrong thing on, on a search engine and you, you're confronted by filth. And uh, so people need to be take this very seriously and confess it if they have been involved. Take it to confession. It will not be the first time the priest heard it for sure. And he'll be grateful that you are bringing it up because many people justify it. You know, so that is really important for Catholics to stay in a state of grace, go to confession, stay away from these things especially the occult, and it can be many years ago. Just confess it. I remember when I was baptized in the spirit and the charismatic renewal, that was the one thing they emphasized that nobody had ever talked about. This is in the early 80s. Any involvement in the occult. And that night, I was I think 23, I had a terrifying dream of huge spiders, my, my biggest fear in life, coming after me, and I ran down the stairs and jumped over the banister and almost hurt myself very seriously in terror. So whatever it was... Um, I hadn't renounced it yet, and I, I guess the enemy was after me because I obviously had a great spiritual growth being involved in the charismatic renewal. And I, I, so I had a view a couple times in my life of how my own ignorance, really, and curiosity. You mentioned curiosity as being dangerous. Talk about that a little bit because I talked about Hollywood and you know and how is curiosity can can be lead you into trouble. Yeah, I heard uh, one exorcist talking, and he said. He pointed out how a school was boasting that uh, their kids were curious, and he's like, "No, no, let's let's not boast about <laughs> about curiosity because it's I guess you would say it's an unregulated or an unordered intellectual pursuit. It's it's one that navigates uh, loosely and is because Adam and Eve, like Eve, was curious when this snake started talking to her. So the idea, if you take it literally, that the devil appeared as a talking snake, Eve would have known." all of the natures of created creatures and that there is no such thing as a talking snake. So when the snake starts talking to her, she should have instinctively uh, run to God, run to Adam, not talk to it because something is wrong. But instead she was curious. Oh, what does this talking snake have to say? This is new. Uh, so that, and that led to the, to her fall to Adam's fall and to the fall of humanity. Um, the curiosity, especially nowadays, like, um, I think curiosity is what leads a lot of people into the occult. They get bored. They get bored with the world. They get bored with good. Um, being a, a goody two shoes is a negative. Being an angel. I remember when I was a kid, like if someone was an angel, it was a negative thing. And I remember being per perplexed about that. Um, and I didn't want to be an angel because that was a bad thing. Uh, but being so being curious um, about the sensational, about the mysterious, about the unknown to go beyond. Because in this world, Satan's going to give you something. Like if you're curious and you're unfettered, you're unattached to your faith, you're not guided by your faith. He's like, I'll show you something. Watch this. And he can perform pseudo miracles. He can do things. There's the, the famous conversion of uh, Zachary King, the, the satanic high priest. And he talked about some of the spells he would cast on him. He was like 10 years old and he would find money. Money would appear and money would appear again, and lots of money would appear. Like It was working. The devil can do these things. So curiosity is dangerous because it's not just fantasy. The devil is not fantasy. He's real. Demons are real, and their, their ability to do things is real, especially now. Like, I, again, I keep saying especially now, but with the internet, if people are curious about something, and they can Google it and probably find it, probably find an image, a video, a story, um, other people who want whatever this thing is, uh, they can find it. And that is destructive because, especially because of pornography. I mean, the devil knows our, our weakest link. And that's one of the weakest links of humanity, especially now. So um, 
what, what people, what kids need, kids and adults need is a structured intellect, an ordered intellect, one that is not curious, but dedicated to truth. Instead of curiosity, you need a dedication to truth because truth will satisfy the intellect. Some people, they don't have truth and their intellect is firing, looking for something enticing, but they don't have truth. So then they go off to the occult. And that's what people are, that's what exorcists are seeing now. The higher, the, as the faith dives, the occult is rising. And um, there's one quote, let me see if I can find it. I think I have it here. Two exorcists have mentioned this from Pope Benedict. I don't know where it comes from um, exactly, but it has to do with, with the rise of evil. I did not have this in my book. This is in um, the, a book called The Trouble with Magic by, by an exorcist, Father Ermattinger, Father Cliff Ermattinger. But he quotes Pope Benedict. And this is the quote. The atheistic culture of the modern West lives in great part thanks to the freedom from the fear of demons, which was brought about through Christianity. But if this redemptive light of Christ is snuffed out, even with all the science and technology we have gained, the world will of needs fall back into terror and desperation. In fact, we see signs of this already with the growth of satanic cults in our secularized world. And that's as the faith dies, Satan rises. And that is the story of the world. And I think even secular people um, I've seen on Twitter are remarking, what is going on? Something's going on. Things are getting darker and darker and darker. And seem to be accelerating the evil of the things you thought you'd never see in public that are just basically seen as entertainment because people got cell phones and they're recording people mm-hmm. being and tortured and it's just really terrifying. And even people that don't know God per se know that evil when they see it. Now, <clears throat> very interesting to mention curiosity because, you know, as kids, we're always taught, oh, be curious. But in public schools, we weren't guided as to where the curiosity should be. And so it should be seeking truth, not curiosity for curiosity's sake. Like I was nine years old. I was seeking witchcraft and ESP. It was very popular in the 70s. Um, all these sort of... Um, um, extrasensory perception, things that were beyond the visual, physical world. I was seeking God in the wrong way because I didn't have the guidance to seek him. The church was demystified in many cases in my and So I wanted to see that mystical experience. And thankfully, God you know, he did lead me in that way. But external guidelines were gone. And many, most kids, um, I worked in a pregnancy center. I asked these young women about their faith life. And they have to roll their eyes back and they go, I think my grandmother went to a church. Wait, I can just remember the name of it. And they, they don't even remember faith in the two generations back. So there's absolutely no guardrails for them. So their they're, you know, excessive sexual activity and maybe occult activity has really ruined their lives. And they have no idea how it happened. So there's um, a difficult point, but we need to bring it up, is that the sins that bring the occult, um, that bring the devil to our lives are the sins that are contrary to nature. And a lot of times they're sexual sins. They're homosexuality, uh, uh, adultery, fornication. These open us up their mortal sins. And, they, and they're contrary, well, especially homosexuality is contrary to nature. They invite Satan. And it's very controversial to say that, even in the church. Because yeah. It's but hate the sin. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that make, um, as Father Thomas was saying, that bishops are scared to address Satan is because if you compromise on the homosexual agenda, LGBT, transgender, all this stuff, uh, and you know the devil's behind it, well, you're you're, you're compromised, you, and you're 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 kind of pushed into a corner because it's it's going to be kind of a mark of the beast issue eventually because there's a, a new humanity a new morality a new humanism rising and it involves all of those disorders it's it's redefining what human nature is Remember cardinal sarah recently said that how oh, is it uh transgender which is satanic because it's mutilation it involves mutilation of the person a complete attack and assault on what the human nature is based on a lie that our sexual nature is a gift. It's a creation of God and properly used. It's obviously uh, perpetuates our human, you know, humanity. So it is a good, but the devil takes everything good and twists it. 
Right. Yeah. There was, um, um, because there's so much power, right? Like you said, he takes everything good and perverts it, destroys it, taints it. Um, and he's, he's so aggressive against sexuality because it has the potential to, it, it is such a good. So he knows he needs to attack it on every level possible so that there's nothing good left of it or that anyone, <clears throat> even in our minds, those who, who stay close to Christ, like we've seen it. He's exposed us. This is one of his victories. Satan has exposed us to all of these evil images, evil concepts, evil philosophies, and those are assaults on our intellects and can destabilize our own like peace about what's true. So even though like we're not the direct victims, we're, we're the indirect victims because he, it's so effective what he's doing and so so global. This creates a lot of uh, wounds in our nature through sexual abuse, which is also on the rise. And that's what Satan exploits in many cases to influence somebody. Um, there's a podcast of Trace Piccola, and um, she was abused and was um, did have abortions and was possessed. And uh, she talks about her possession very openly. So I follow that. So I can see how I can help the young women that are coming in the center to avoid demonic influence because they've been involved in abortion, many of them, and were abused and had no religious background. And they're, they're just so vulnerable to attack. Um, so it's very important to help these people, but to tell the truth where the evil is coming from. You can't get anywhere by ignoring it. And it takes a certain amount of courage, and I admire you for that courage. Um, we're almost at the end of our time, so I wanted to, to end on a positive note. We know where the evil is. Talk about um, prayers that are effective, um, in addition to being the state of grace that you have found effective. I started with the St. Michael prayer. Uh, the rosary, of course, is very effective against evil. What other prayers have you found to be very effective? Yeah, so St. Michael and the rosary, two big ones. Um, guardian angel, the guardian angel prayer. Um, Father Ripperger has a, a prayer in his deliverance prayers for use by the laity. I think it's called the commissioning of the soul and body. Um, to um, it's, You're commissioning yourself, you can say it during the day or at night, but to your angel to protect you and do more work in your life. And he says, it's one of the great things I, I love that he said, the more you pray to your guardian angel, the more authority he has over you, the more permission you have given him to act in your life. So the guardian angel prayer, another one is the... Um, our Lady of Sorrows. So the, the chaplet of Our Lady of Sorrows, um, where you meditate on the seven sorrows of Our Lady in the life of our Lord. And I found that to be very beneficial in my own life whenever I, I don't take it up as much as I need to. But when I have, uh, it's been very powerful, both in the intellectual meditation and also in the level of enlightenment that comes with that, but also the, the comfort that Our Lady can provide through her intercession. So the chaplet of Our Lady of Sorrows and then Our Lady Undoer of Knots, that before I even did the research, a priest suggested I do that as part of the spiritual renewal I was going through right before I began the research. Uh, so Our Lady Undoer of Knots is another good one there. The, um, the Precious Blood, the Most Precious Blood of Jesus, the Litany, highly recommended by priests in, in this ministry because it, it's, it's when we name things, when we invoke our Lord's name, Our Lady's name, the names of saints, the imagery, the blood of Christ, like is not just a word, it's a supernatural reality. So the demon responds to the supernatural reality when we name something. So invoking, you know, um, invoking the cross, invoking the passion. So meditations on like on the passion of Christ in particular, uh, which can be the rosary as a prayer. Um, and there are, um, oh, there's one that's been, that, sorry, you go ahead. This is the cross. The Stations of the Cross are a great meditation on the Passion. Uh, Father Rippinger recommends the Auxilium Christianorum prayers, yeah. uh, which is every night. It takes five minutes. It includes a litany to the precious blood, among others. And I found it very comforting. I mean, you're mentioning Our Lady beating up this, the demons and casting them into hell. It really is very consoling to know we've got such a powerful advocate. Um, mm -hmm. After fear. And rather than give me fear by focusing on it, it reminds me who's in charge. And I think that's a good perspective. So I recommend that. You have a book that, that just came out, right, um, that you're publishing through your site on, on spiritual prayers, right? A little green book. I think I saw it the other day. Oh, actually, that was, that is Father Ripperker's book. I finally bought a bulk um, quantity and I'm selling it on my website. 
Um, yeah, so that, that's his. Uh, but I am working on a, um, not a follow-up to Slaying Dragons, but kind of a study guide. I'm still picking the name, but it doesn't go through chapter by chapter, but I've been working on it for, I don't know, maybe a year now. And I'm hoping it'll be finished in the next couple of months. But it's, it's kind of a contemplative meditation leading you through applying spiritual warfare to your life and with a whole bunch of prayers. All this great prayers I've been collecting, writing some original prayers in there. Um, but that one's a couple months away. But yeah, so the one you saw on Twitter, <laughs> that's Father Ripperker's. I'm just now selling it in my store. Uh, here's a copy of, of your book, Slaying Dragons. Uh, give us your website again so people can find this. Yeah, so it's... Um, the website where you can buy it because it's on Amazon, but I encourage you to buy it directly from me. So we give less money to Amazon. Um, it's the retreatbox.com. So the retreatbox.com. That's my business website. You can find all my books there. Um, and then I also write on the slaying dragons book.com is my um, kind of blog website where I write articles a lot. I've been keeping that website up for almost two years. I started that right when I published the book, which is almost two years ago. Two years on the Feast of St. Michael is the uh, publication. You everywhere on Twitter and Facebook, so you can be followed on either one, site, right? Do you have a Facebook site for your book as yeah, well? I, um, I, I have Facebook under my own name, Charles D. Franny. I need to start one just dedicated to the book, but I post my articles there and insights there, kind of like at Twitter, same name, Charles D. Franny. You can find me on Twitter. And then any new books that I write or bring into my store, like Father Ripper's prayer book I now have, I'll post in those places as well as on my um, blog website. And uh, for those who are who are curious, the, the book I think I mentioned already has three bishops endorsements, including Bishop Joseph Strickland and Bishop Athanasius Schneider. And I'm trying to get some more. So if Anybody has connections? Let me know. <laughs> well, I'm sure they're grateful for your work, um, and as um, as am I, because the more fortified we can help our fellow Christians and Catholics be, the better society will be. The more will be back the darkness, which does threaten to envelop certainly our government, our media, and our, our homes. You know, that's the scary part. That how many Catholics um, have allowed this? to come in so thank you so much for your work god bless you and uh, if you get a new book please be in touch so that we can uh, we can help people to get it you've done a beautiful job and a great service to the church great thank you thank you so much for having me on it's been a pleasure hello god's beloved i'm annabelle mosley author professor of theology and host of then sings my soul and destination sainthood on wcat radio I invite you to listen in and find inspiration along this sacred journey we're traveling together to make our lives a masterpiece and, with God's grace, become saints. Join me, Annabelle Mosley, for Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. God bless you. Remember, you're never alone. God is always with you. Thank you for listening to a production of WCAT Radio. Please join us in our mission of evangelization. And don't forget, love lifts up where knowledge takes flight.